Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges as we continue our series through this book. We're in chapter 3 and verse 12. Uh, Last week we were introduced to the first judge, Othniel, not well known. And I asked the children who the most famous judge was, I had in mind that they would choose Samson. And uh, we had at least one vote for Ehud, uh, the man that is before us this morning. And uh, perhaps if you're not familiar with this story, you'll realize why this might be uh, a a favorite with a a young boy in the congregation. Um, But Ehud is a challenging book and a story in some ways as we try to consider uh, why this uh, graphic and violent story finds its way into our Bible. Uh, One of my friends who's an Old Testament scholar said he he thinks it's helpful as, as we read this to picture the scene Uh, So uh, there's this King Eglon from an outside nation called Moab, and he's established his palace. And so the action is going to occur uh, in uh, that format where the the tribute is being brought into this palace area. And so there'd be a long reception hall. And then then at the end of it, uh, there's like stairs going up. And this is where King Eglon has his throne. And so it's so high, it's almost on a second level, like up where the balcony is here. And so he would come out and sit, and uh, all his vassals would come in and bow and scrape before him. And then up there, uh, he has windows so that it's cooler in uh, in the hot uh, times of the year. And he has some private chambers up there as well. And so you have to picture this as uh, our our judge for today, Ehud, is coming in uh, to this palace and then Uh, coming before this king. Now let's give attention to God's word. We'll begin at chapter, sorry, chapter uh, 3, verse 12, and we'll go down uh, to verse 30. This is the word of God. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, uh, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger, It was double-edged and a cubit in length, and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, uh, and by implication he's left the palace now, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails uh, literally 
his dung came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited until they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Syrah, And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. And he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And there will end the the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us as we consider it together this morning. Now, who says the Bible's boring? Well, last week, a uh, Russian hockey player who plays for the NHL Philadelphia Flyers made national news because he declined to wear a rainbow-colored warm-up jersey uh, during Gay Pride Night uh, that the Flyers were hosting. And when he was asked about his decision not to participate in the warm-ups where they were wearing their rainbow-colored jerseys and taped their sticks with rainbow-colored tape, he simply said, I respect everybody and their choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and, I'm, and my religion, and that's all I'm going to say. Uh, he's a uh, Russian Orthodox church member. And for that opinion, uh, he was uh, roundly criticized uh, as one who is a hateful person hiding behind his religion. And one commentator went so far as to saying he should just go back to Russia you might have seen Tony Dungy got similar treatment for the, the sin of appearing at the Walk for Life, the March for Life in Washington, and actually speaking at it uh, this past Friday. Uh, and it reminds us that we live in a culture that's very hostile uh, to God's word and to God himself and to people who would uh, try to follow God. And uh, it can be very tempting Uh, in this kind of a scenario, to be intimidated into a sort of silence uh, where we just go along uh, because we are afraid of uh, the the tyrants that are in uh, our culture. And that's sort of the situation we find the people of Israel here in, in this uh, passage. They are under the oppression of a tyrant that's come from, in this case, another country. And in fear and intimidation, uh, they are living under him for this 18-year period. But God does something in the midst of this. God raises up an unlikely hero, uh, this man Ehud from the tribe of Benjamin. And the way God uses Ehud is, is very dramatic, and it's designed to bring humiliation on the enemies of God and his people, and a reminder 
uh, that next to God, the things that we fear so often and that seem so powerful to us are really nothing. And so as we look at this, at this uh, I will say again, strange for our, for our taste story, we need to understand that God is teaching us something important here, that God, in fact, mocks his enemies by overthrowing them, sometimes in very unexpected ways. And he does this so that we learn to trust him and to trust that he will work and that we do not fear the tyrants that are around us. And uh, Lord willing, we'll see how this comes out uh, in the course of the sermon. As Philip mentioned earlier, there is an insert in the bulletin that has an outline, but also a map uh, that I'll be referring to as we work through the passage. And now children, if you're going to draw a picture, well my, aren't there uh, wonderful things you could draw a picture of uh, in this story? Uh, maybe you should get some guidance from your mom or dad as to what they really want you to try. But at least maybe you could dry, uh, draw this man Ehud and uh, what hand is it that he holds his weapon in and why is that significant? Well, as we start working through the passage, the first thing I want you to see here is the fact that in a world full of tyrants, it is easy to be intimidated. You're, you know, this story picks up in verse 12 after the people have had a 40-year period, a full generation of peace brought about by the previous judge, Othniel, who has defeated this king who's come all the way from Mesopotamia. And it seems that, as verse 12 tells us, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, uh, that they have forgotten the deliverance that they have received. And as time goes on and the next generation comes along, uh, they've forgotten the Lord again. I put in your outline uh, a cross-reference from Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. It's a helpful reminder to us. And there, the author of Proverbs says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This temptation that's always facing us, uh, that when things are going well, uh, we say, who is the Lord? We don't need him. And this seems to be what was happening uh, to Israel. Times of peace bred contempt and lack of gratitude. And of course, that's a constant challenge for us as well. But we see here in verse 12 that the Lord, in his mercy to them, raises up another a source of trouble. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. This again is God not abandoning them, God frustrating their efforts to go away from him by raising up this man Eglon. And it appears that the way God strengthened Eglon in verse 13 is to allow him to form an alliance with two other uh, enemies of Israel, the Amalekites and the Ammonites. These are, of course, historic enemies of God's people. And here, if you look at the map that I gave you on the back of the outline, you'll see uh, the different tribes of Israel outlined and then uh, sort of roughly where the different judges uh, have operated. And we began with Othniel, and now uh, we've moved to Ehud, who's kind of in the middle of your picture there. And uh, you'll see that... Um, uh, Ehud is operating around the area there of Gilgal 
and Jericho. We'll talk about that in a moment. But then you see Moab is down here to the east, and uh, Ammon is also to the east. It's not quite on your picture there. And then the Amalekites down in the south. So this is a group that's come from the east, and they've crossed over the Jordan River, and they've taken over. They've actually planted their flag right near Jericho. Uh, That's what the city of Palms is. And you'll remember when the Israelites first came into to the promised land, Jericho was the first battle that they won. And that's a very significant place for them. And now uh, this is where this foreign king from Moab has uh, set up his palace. And so this would be a very significant blow to the people. And it says then to us that for 18 years, uh, they're living under this oppression. For 18 years, they are growing their crops. They are collecting their crops. They are taking them over to feed this king who is uh, growing, as we see later, fatter and fatter, eating the produce of these conquered people. Now, uh, children, I wonder if you've ever seen a tick uh, attach itself to a dog. If you have a dog, maybe sometimes a cat. And a little tiny tick at first can attach itself to a dog. And then if you find it later, I mean, it might look like kind of a pale blueberry or something disgusting like that because the tick is just growing fatter and fatter by sucking the blood out of the dog. And in many ways, this is how... This man, Eglon, who who the text tells us is a very fat man. He's being pictured here as one who has glommed on to God's people and he's sucking the life out of them. He's engorging himself on the fruits of their labor. And, And this is a reminder to us that tyrants, people who seek to enrich themselves on other people are always with us. They're always around us. Sometimes they're powerful and extremely Uh, They're extremely damaging and destructive, and we can think through history. Uh, Nero and Hitler and Mao and Stalin, even Xi uh, today, that these leaders who exploit their people and enrich themselves. But we deal with these kind of people in our own experience, in our own culture, as people who who fancy themselves as uh, crusading do-gooders in our society who want to tell us, what kind of stove we can cook on and what heat we need to use in our house and what car we have to drive. All the while, uh, oftentimes, these are the very people who will benefit the most financially if we make the certain decision that they're trying to coerce us into making. And you have to realize this is, in fact, the way life is. You are surrounded by many tyrants, uh, many, M-I-N-I, and also many, M-A-N-Y. And they're not content to live their life like they think they should live it. You must live your life like they want to live, and you must affirm and celebrate the way they live their life. And so we're often surrounded by this, and this constant pressure uh, causes us to just want to hide and it's, it's very intimidating. We want to keep our heads down and just hide the fact of who we are, what we believe, and what we want to do. And so recognize this is a constant temptation to us to be intimidated. But secondly, we see in this passage that God is able to save and rescue his people through unexpected and even very messy 
means. So again, God's people cry out in verse 15. They cry out to the Lord and when the pain becomes too severe. And God mercifully, as it says in verse 15, raises up a deliverer. And that word can also be translated a savior for them. And, and we see right from the beginning that this deliverer, this judge, is going to be a little bit different than Othniel, the judge we saw last week, who, as we said, was presented to us as sort of a perfect example of a judge who rides out to victory with no complications or issues. He was, as we said last week, from the tribe of Judah, the tribe from which the kings would come. But we see here uh, this man, Ehud, is a Benjamite. So he's from a a small tribe, an obscure tribe. In fact, a tribe that's going to produce just one king in their future, and that king will be a failed king, uh, Saul, whose dynasty is not maintained. Furthermore, this man Ehud is left-handed, and literally the, the Hebrew there is his right hand is restricted. He's not able to use his right hand well. Uh, Now, the stats tell us something like 10% of all people are left-handed. There may have been more than uh, that the normal number in the tribe of Benjamin, as we'll see later. But even in those circumstances, being left-handed was not considered normal. It was not considered desirable. And this is no, I've got a left-handed child. This is no criticism of left-handed people. I'm just telling you how they would have viewed a left-handed person in that kind of situation. Some commentators have actually uh, theorized that he might have had a deformity in his right hand. Now, we don't know that, but what we do know from later in the story is that this uh, King Eglon welcomes Ehud into his presence uh, one-on-one. So whatever Ehud looked like, it wasn't impressive. It wasn't threatening. He didn't look like someone that you needed to be afraid of. Perhaps he was just a very ordinary man. And this is a reminder that this is often how God works, uh, through unexpected means. And uh, we'll see this throughout the book of Judges. I put a cross-reference from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 in your outline there. And to see, this is in fact how God works. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. God often works through ways that are unexpected to us. It's not all the cool kids that God chooses to do his work. In addition, you see here in verse 17 that the the, the people sent tribute to Eglon through the hands of Ehud. And and this is instructive as well, because although the people had cried out in pain to the Lord, and God had raised up Ehud for this purpose, the people did not see him as their deliverer. They sent the tribute, again, uh, for the 18th time, all their produce that they're growing. And this would have been a large uh, group, and, and Ehud would have probably had a whole group of people with him to carry all the grain and everything else that they brought uh, to Eglon. And so the people don't see him as a deliverer. Now we know from verse 16 that, Eglon, or that Ehud has a plan. 
and that he actually is preparing to do something about the situation. He makes a small short sword that's a little bit over a foot long and he can hide it on his right leg because he's left-handed. He'll be cross-drawing, to use that term, uh, when he gets his sword out. And so Ehud has a plan. He is going to address the issue. And scholars have really struggled with Ehud because they see here this, this man has premeditated this attack. This attack involves deception. Uh, it's brutally violent. Uh, what do we make of it? What do we make of it? And I think one of the things we make of it is that Ehud is a pretty good representation of the people. Um, he's, he's just like the people in, in the sense that he's not impressive and that some things in our lives are messy. And sometimes our messes are self-inflicted, that we've created them. And sometimes extreme measures are needed to rescue us. And all of that is not a problem for God. Ralph Davis, in commenting on this, says, the God of the Bible does not hold back in the wild blue yonder somewhere waiting for you to pour Clorox and spray spray Lysol over the affairs of your life before he will touch it. Whether you can comfortably put it together or not, he is the God who delights in his people, even in their messes. And that is a tremendous blessing to us. Now recognize that where this falls in the book of Judges is itself instructive to us. Um, I don't know if some of you saw, saw, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal last week about Euchre, the card game. Uh, Euchre's life lessons. The card game popular in the Midwest requires teamwork and risk-taking. And uh, if you're here and you don't know how to play Euchre, you need to learn. This, this is a part of your cultural heritage uh, living here. And so a whole, a whole article on uh, how Euchre uh, teaches life lessons. And, and when you're teaching someone how to play Euchre, you would explain the rules, right? You would give the pattern, and then you would play a practice hand. And you might even have all the cards so people could see them. And what the book of Judges has done is give us the, the plan Right? In, the, in, the, in the previous chapter when it says, here's the cycle of the judges. The people turn from God. God raises up an enemy to oppress the people. The people cry out to God. God raises up a deliverer. The deliverer rescues the people. There's some peace. Then the people forget God again. That's the basic cycle that we're in. And then the first example, Othniel, that was a sample hand. Oh, it was a beautiful hand. It was almost like uh, the dealer turned up a jack and had a go-it-alone hand, and we just laid down all the cards, and it was perfect. And now, now we're on to the second hand, and it's an absolute mess. You've got the queen and a ten in trumps and then an offsuit ace, and you're trying to figure out what do I do with this hand. And isn't that so often what our lives are actually like? And sometimes it's it's like that because of the decisions we've made. Sometimes it's like that because of the decisions other people have made. And things are messy. And there's divorce. And there's job loss. And there's health problems. And there's addiction. 
and there's anger, and there's all kinds of other issues that we're dealing with. And God doesn't then step off and say, well, you got yourself into this mess, I'm sorry. God continues to work with his people, graciously work with his people. And this is what we're seeing here. God is able to work through unexpected, unexpected and sometimes messy means to save his people. Thirdly, in fact, God laughs at how ridiculous his and your enemies are. Now here, you cannot begin to appreciate what's going on in this story unless you realize that the author uses irony and sarcasm and humor throughout. One commentator says, by ancient standards, this would be considered a comedy as you told the story. And so as we walk through the details of this assassination here, recognize there are many things that are included in the story designed to make a mockery of this terrible, evil king who's oppressing the people. So for one thing, the hero, Ehud, he's a left-handed man from the right-handed tribe. Benjamin Benjamin means son of the right hand. So that's the tribe he belongs to, the son of the right hand. Yet he's a lefty coming from the son of the right hand. The bad guy, Eglon, who's described as enormously fat, so fat that his body swallows up a a dagger that's over a foot long. Um, The word for fat is the same word used in the book of Leviticus for the choice parts of the offering. I put an example in your outline from Leviticus chapter 3, verse 3. Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering, an offering made by fire to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. So understand, Eglon is here being described like a sacrifice. The name Eglon means like a calf. He's, He's a fattened sacrifice who's actually fattened himself for the sacrifice. In addition, he's described as being ridiculously vain and gullible. So Ehud comes with this delegation bringing uh, their, their uh, grain and other produce to give to Eglon. And to get into the palace and to go into the reception room, he would have to go through all these rituals. He would be bowing, he would be scraping, he would be saying how great Eglon is, the wise and the exalted Eglon all the time where he has this sword strapped to his leg. And once he has delivered the tribute, uh, in verse 17, uh, it says he, uh, he sends the people away. And the idea here is he leaves the palace. He walks right out of the palace with the people who've come with him. And after he walks a while, I don't know if he pretends like he forgot his cell phone or whatever happens, but he sends them on. You guys go ahead I need to go back. And so he comes back to deliver a secret message. Now, uh, perhaps because he turns back, it says uh, where these idols are. He turns back at the stone images that were at Gilgal. Uh, This is a significant problem because Gilgal was where they had set up the 12 stones to celebrate coming into the promised land. And now there's idols there because the people are, are forgetting their God. 
And uh, he turns back at Gilgal on your map. You'll see it's right by Jericho where the, uh, where the palace was. And he comes back and he's forgotten uh, something. But he, he says to Eglon as he comes back into the chamber, uh, I've got a message from God from you. Only the word message could be translated word or a thing. Uh, I've got something, I've got a secret something here for you, Eglon, is really how it's being presented. And so Eglon, in his uh, pride, sends everybody, he says, silence, don't, don't give the message with everybody here. Send everybody out. And then he invites Ehud to come up uh, to where he is, up on his upper chamber, to give this personal message. And so Ehud comes, says, I have a message, a secret message from God for you. And he only uses the general name, Elohim for God, not Yahweh, their covenant God. So again, he could interpret this, maybe it's his pagan God who's coming uh, to speak to him. But we know uh, that Ehud is telling the truth. He's got a secret. He's, he's about to give him a message. And so as, the, uh, as, a, as Eglon stands up and exposes uh, his midsection, uh, we read here that Ehud quickly draws out the knife and plunges it into him, and it is engulfed. And then, graphically, but, but not uh, inconsequential to the story, it says that he leaves, the, uh, he leaves the knife in his belly in verse 22, and our version here tries to sanitize it by saying his entrails came out uh, it's really that his, his bowels empty at this point. And uh, this is a graphic situation. But you see how it plays in to the humor. Because he closes the doors. Right? And now he has to disappear. And, and, and commentators have long speculated, how does he get out of this with the doors closed? Um, I'll give you one theory, and it's actually been incorporated into one of the translations. It says he escaped down the latrine. Uh, but he gets himself out of that room and walks out. And so uh, the servants see that he's left. They think, okay, the, uh, the secret message has been delivered. We can go in, but now the door is locked. And they assume that he's going to the bathroom. And one of the reasons they probably assume that is because of what has happened earlier when this man has been killed and has voided his bowels. So they wait, and they wait. And they wait so long that Ehud is able to escape. He gets all the way back to Gilgal before they open it up, and there they find their dead king laying on the floor. Now recognize the whole assassination is punctuated. See if you look in verse 26, Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images. It's punctuated by these stone images in a place they shouldn't be to remind us, right, that the people, because they've turned from God, have created this terrible situation, yet God is saving them anyway. And we might be very critical of the graphic detail that's here, but understand that this was done to make the enemies of God look ridiculous. It's deliberate humor. This man is nothing more than a sacrificial animal before the Lord. And this is sort of what is expressed in Psalm 2, verse 4, that we sang earlier in the service. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. 
the Lord shall hold them in derision. And in due time, God completely exposes his enemies as the phonies that they are. Uh, I know you children are probably familiar with the, the story, The Emperor's New Clothes, uh, where uh, uh, it's a Hans Christian Andersen story. And the uh, emperor hires these very expensive tailors to make him a new set of clothes. Uh, but it's a new set of clothes that you can only see if you're very smart. Uh, if you're stupid, you can't see the clothes. Uh, so then, of course, they pretend like they're putting clothes on the emperor, and there are no clothes there at all, but everybody else goes along with it. Oh, those are great clothes. They look great because they don't want to be thought of as stupid until the emperor goes outside, and a little boy says, the emperor's not wearing clothes. Fought one person to tell the truth and to say how ridiculous this is. But do you see how important this is for us? We need to be reminded that every power whether great or small, that sets itself against God and his people is ultimately ridiculous. And it's helpful for us to remember that. It's a helpful corrective when we feel intimidated and, and beat down and afraid to get God's perspective on these things. Commentator Barry Webb says, by its humor, the Ehud story invites us to see the tyrants of this world as God sees them, and to join in the laughter of heaven. So God does laugh at the ridiculousness of his and your enemies. Fourthly, we see here that God overthrows tyrants for the sake of his people, for your sake, if you belong to him. So Ehud escapes, and verse 27 says that he blows the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. He calls the people down to now go and fight. And of course, because they hear that Eglon is dead, they believe that God is actually at work, that God is actually going to deliver them. So they rise up to fight against their oppressors. And we don't hear what happens to the Amalekites and the Ammonites. They sort of melt away. But we do see that the Moabites who have invaded their land are trapped now. And uh, it says that they went down and they seized the fords of the Jordan. So again, if you look at your map where the Jordan River runs kind of uh, north and south uh, right through there, really almost where uh, just below we see Ehud's name on the sheet. And they come there and they, and they control the area where these Moabite soldiers have to cross over. And it says the Lord gives them a tremendous victory and they're able to kill 10,000 of these soldiers. And the end result in verse 30, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years, 80 years of peace. That's the longest period in this entire book that the people were free from this kind of oppression. And this is why God used Ehud for the sake of his people. Uh, this is in fact why God does everything that God does. Ephesians 1 verse 22, another cross-reference I put in your outline, and he put that is, God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. The reason Jesus did what he did, the reason Jesus rules over all things now is for the sake of the church. And we need to remember that. I think I've told the story before, but in, in the late 1990s, uh, a number of theologians gathered in London to celebrate the 350th anniversary 
of the Westminster Assembly. That's the assembly that produced the confession of faith that we adhere to. And uh, when they were there to celebrate this uh, anniversary, Westminster Abbey was covered with scaffolding because they were redoing that, that old and historic building. And one of the men who was there commented that it was a really apt metaphor for the way God uses history to build his church. We look at the world we're in and we see the mess of a construction site. We see the scaffolding. We see the building materials. Uh, We see it, it doesn't look right. But all the while, underneath the scaffolding, there's a glorious structure being built. And this is what's going on in our world. We look around and we see the mess and the apparent chaos of of history as it unfolds. But underneath that, what God's real focus on is the church uh, that he's building and establishing. And one day it's going to be revealed in all its glory. And the ugly scaffolding will be removed. And we'll finally understand what God was doing as he was perfecting his people and making them uh, just like he wants them to be. And so this is really helpful because we look at this and we see Ehud and he's been called by commentators an assassin, a murderer, a spy, a liar. But the Bible calls him savior. That's what what this scripture calls him, savior. This is what God is doing, saving his people, saving them, working for their sake. So this brings us to our final point that we need to learn to trust God and his savior and not to fear the tyrants that are around us. Recognize this is a story of an ordinary looking man who under the power of the spirit shows incredible courage and resolve, nerves of steel and a willingness to do whatever has to be done to liberate God's people. And rather than recruit an army or to get assurances that all this would go well, he acts alone. He kills the king by himself. He defeats their enemy. And in this way, Ehud points us to the great deliverer of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ordinary man who didn't look particularly impressive. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3, speaking about the Messiah. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And, as it, and, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. There's our Lord Jesus, an ordinary, unimpressive looking person from the outside. And we also see here, uh, he was the one who was willing to do whatever was necessary to save his people. And we know Jesus didn't do violence, but he was the recipient of profound violence. He was the one who was nailed to the cross. He was the one who had a spear rammed into his side and his blood poured out. He was the one who faced the wrath and the anger of God poured out for the sins of all of his people for all time. We we wince at what Ehud does here and yet here's Jesus 
doing something far more radical in that it is the Son of God coming to suffer at the hands of his own creatures to save his people. And in doing so, Jesus humiliates all of his and our enemies. Look at Colossians 2, verse 15, which speaks about Jesus' work on the cross. And it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's the work of Christ on the cross. And as a result then, you and I, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, do not need to live in fear or be intimidated by the tyrants, small or large, that are around you. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And that really is the secret to living without fear, is to have a greater respect and love for God than we have for the people around us. Peter writes about this to Christians who feared their adversaries in Roman culture. In 1 Peter 3, he says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats nor troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. How do you not be afraid? You sanctify the Lord in your heart. You have a higher view that God is holy and precious in your sight. And that's what we are to remember from the story of Ehud, that we have a savior, an unexpected savior, who is willing to do whatever it took to save you from your sins. And he did that. And he did it alone, fighting against evil. And he succeeded in delivering his people from judgment and from sin. And when we see what our Savior has done, we're reminded that the things that we think are big in this world are not that big. And we can learn to laugh with our Lord who laughs at his enemies and sweeps them away so that his people might be saved. Let's pray and we'll ask him to help us take these things in. Heavenly Father, we confess that this is a, a difficult story. It's, it's graphic, it's violent, and yet, Lord, we see it's a picture of deliverance, that you're not afraid to get your hands dirty. We thank you that you sent our Lord Jesus, who alone delivered us from our great enemy, the devil. And how we thank you that because Christ has saved us, for all those who are trusting in him, uh, you promise you will uh, fully and finally deliver us from every tyrant and busybody and uh, oppressor that we may deal with in our lives. And we know that, Lord, the church in many parts of the world faces genuine, genuine oppression, unlike anything we know. How we thank you for this word and we pray that you would encourage us as you would encourage our brothers and sisters around the world uh, that our great enemies are nothing before you. 
and that we can trust you and your Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. And now we'll uh, sing back our praise to the Lord uh, from Psalm, uh, Psalm 98, Selection B. And this speaks about God winning the great victory through his right hand, uh, which is a reminder that God's right hand sometimes saves through left-handed people. That's just the kind of God that we serve. Let's stand and we'll praise the Lord, Psalm 98. 